Hi there, this is Pastor Aaron of Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church, and we pray that through the preaching of God's Word that you are encouraged and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you have any questions or comments, uh, you can find us at www.fairviewcornerstone.com, and uh, please write to us. We'd love to uh, hear any questions or comments. We pray the Lord encourage you through this sermon. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us access to your throne of grace, that you have removed the veil that once separated, uh, Lord, us from, from coming before you in your, in your holy presence, Lord, and, and now through Christ, we, we have this privilege. And so we thank you, and God, I ask that you would continue to teach us to pray as a church, that you would burden our hearts to, to not neglect this privilege or to underestimate, Lord, the effects of prayers given to you in Jesus name and we lift these things up to you Lord some items of thanksgiving and uh, some requests father we thank you for little Bella and uh, we just pray as well for Will and Ray Lord as they are there caring for her and just trying to patiently wait for her body to strengthen we thank you for the progress that's been made and just how you've watched over them uh, from the beginning of of her delivery and Lord we ask that you would continue to uh, just bring glory to your name, Lord, even as people hear of what's happened and the prayers and that you would give Will and Ray courage to testify to your faithfulness, Lord. And we ask that people would, would come to know you uh, as Lord and Savior, even through her young life. And Father, we pray um, as well for some of the ministries coming up this summer. We think of Vacation Bible School here, that you would just honor and bless uh, our effort to be a light to the families and children in Fairview. We pray that you would give us the needed resources and help. And Lord, as we uh, try to go out into the community on Wednesday, that uh, Lord, you would help us to uh, just be the aroma of Christ to those that we come in contact with. We pray as well for David Thompson. And uh, Lord, we think of other camps like SYC and, and these things that are going on throughout the summer months. Father, would you especially for those in leadership positions, that they would proclaim your word, Lord, and uh, they would point people to Christ with, uh, with, without being ashamed of the gospel. And Lord, for all those that are helping, that you would give them the resources needed um, to, to give their time in that way. We pray as well uh, for Vicky's grandma, that you bring her back safely, and that, Lord, you would draw her to yourself, and that you would Help her to appreciate uh, your grace and your love, uh, Lord, that you've offered to us through Christ. We pray for our government, Lord, and those that are in positions of authority. Father, would you, would you uh, even as you have done in the past, Lord, reveal yourself to them, that you are the God of heaven and earth, that you are the, the King of kings, and Lord, that there would be a fear of you once again in the hearts of our leaders. And so we pray, Lord, that they would understand their position um, is not the final authority, but they are servants of yours and given this uh, position for a season. And Lord, help us to, to be involved as citizens uh, in the things that are happening around us and to, to be salt and light. Father, we pray for Brielle Hostetler that you help her hand heal and just your hand upon the, their family, God, and uh, just thank you for, for helping her get the surgery that she needed. And we pray as well for the family, the double portion team, uh, the Hemmerling family, Duncan and Debbie, would you continue to give them joy in what they do, Lord, and that they would continue to um, proclaim the truth 
Father, that you would guide them into all truth and you give them the, the resources as well to, to travel and to sing and to share uh, the gospel. And Lord, we pray for them this morning. And we ask now as we look at your word that you would encourage our hearts, that you would give us insight and illuminate our minds by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so um, we're going to carry on in the Gospel of Luke, and we will be starting chapter 4 today, after finishing the, the genealogy last week. And uh, you guys were all very gracious in... in uh, no one complained about uh, a sermon on a genealogy, and, and uh, I don't know, I was very encouraged studying just how God had faithfully worked through so many generations to bring his son. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at a very familiar passage, uh, I imagine, to all of you, one that you've heard and read and uh, have, have heard preached on probably many times, but um, we're just going to carry on in, in Luke's account and before I read the scripture this morning, I wanted to just give you a quick uh, overview of some of the uses of this 40-day period in the Old Testament, just to help you kind of get a bit of the context, the backstory of what's come before Jesus entering into the wilderness. And then, so I'll give you a little bit of a history on some of the ways this comes up in the scriptures, this 40 days, because I found it very fascinating, uh, just, you know, doing a search on 40 days throughout the Scripture and seeing how many times in this, the ways in which this comes up. And I think it, it helps us to also appreciate what Jesus is doing here. So, first of all, um, this would probably be a good one for the kids. How many days and nights did it rain while Noah was on the ark? Do you know how many, Emily? 40 days and 40 nights, right? So we see this number 40 come up pretty early in the scriptures, and it's a number that continues to come up. So on the ark, it rained 40 days and 40 nights. Um, interesting, even in Genesis 50, when it talks about uh, Jacob being embalmed in Egypt, it was a 40-day process for that to take place. And uh, that was something that the Egyptians recognized as a appropriate length of time for this process. Um, we see that Moses, um, how long was he in Egypt? I don't know. It's going to get pretty obvious, I guess, after a bit. Moses, 40 years in Egypt, and then how long was he in the desert before being called by God to lead the Israelites? 40 years in the desert. And when Moses goes up onto the mountain uh, initially to speak with God, to receive the, the word of God, he is on the mountain, we're told in Exodus, um, well, first in, in Exodus 20, uh, but also in 34, 40 days and 40 nights, and Moses goes up onto the mountain, and the second time he goes up in Exodus 34, he also fasts for 40 days and 40 nights as he receives, we're told, the, the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Moses fasts 40 days and 40 nights, and then as Moses writes in Deuteronomy 9, he comes down from the mountain, he sees the rebellion of Israel, they're worshiping this golden calf. Moses, in anger, destroys the tablets, but then we're also told in Deuteronomy 9, 9, that he then fasts 40 days and 40 nights, 
pleading that God would have mercy upon the people. So you can imagine Moses coming down after 40 days of fasting and, and beholding the glory of God. And then after seeing the rebellion of God's people again fasting for 40 days, as he prays for them and intercedes that God would not destroy them. Uh, here's another one for maybe the children would know. How many days did the Israelite spies spy out the land, the promised land? When they came, they were to spy out the land. How many days did they spy it out for? Forty days they spied out the land, which is why um, God says in Numbers 14, they come back from spying out the land, and they all except Joshua and Caleb say, we can't do it. These guys are too big. They're too strong. We cannot defeat them. And so God punishes them. In Numbers 14, he says this, according to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day you shall bear your iniquity, forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. And then the Lord goes on to tell the people of Israel, because of their lack of faith, he says, I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all the wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. So, Forty days they spy out the land. They come back and say, God, we can't do this. We, we, we can't take this land that you've given to us. They don't have faith. They don't trust in God's ability to provide. So God punishes them. And for every day they were in the land, they have a year of exile in the wilderness. And so you see this theme building throughout the Old Testament. Um, guess how many days Goliath taunted the Israelites for? Forty days Goliath comes forward and taunts the people of Israel, uh, telling them to send out their champion that he might fight with them. And we see that in 1 Samuel 17, 16. Elijah the prophet, you know this story, after he defeats the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, he is victorious. God consumes his sacrifice, but then Jezebel threatens Elijah's life and tells him that she's going to kill him. So he flees into the wilderness, and in, um, we have this amazing account in 1 Kings 19 that God comes to him, and we're told it says in, in uh, 1 Kings 19, 5, and he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. We see this again and again in the Old Testament. Um, just a few more, and this isn't all of them. How many days did Nineveh have to repent well, at the message of Jonah. Jonah comes into Nineveh and says, you guys are living in wickedness. God has pronounced judgment over you. You have 40 days to repent of your sin and turn to God. And even after the uh, uh, resurrection of Jesus, he walks on the earth, we're told in Acts 1-3, 40 days with his disciples before ascending. So this is not just a random number. 
And it's loaded and packed with all kinds of uh, symbolism and history in the life of Israel. So let's then read the passage before us. And I'll invite you to stand with me. And we'll read starting at Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and we'll read down to verse 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hand they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until a more uh, opportune time. So the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Thank you. You may be seated. So we come to this passage, and with all of the previous history of Israel, all of the, the failures of God's people and, and their lack of obedience in many ways, their doubt, their struggle, Jesus now enters into the wilderness. And so this morning we're just going to look at two tests that uh, we could see Jesus taking and passing. Two tests that Jesus takes and passes, and there's several several tests, and in one sense, you could say that from conception to the cross, uh, this is the, the life of Jesus is him fulfilling the great test of his obedience to the Father. But here specifically, as we look at his ministry begin, we see a few uh, initial stages of this test of Jesus, the testing of God's Son. And you have to remember what's just happened in the narrative, right? We, we had the baptism of Jesus where John baptized him. The Father pronounced his blessing over the Son. And the Spirit of God came down as a dove upon Jesus. And he was uh, acknowledged as the Messiah. He was anointed as the beloved Son of God. And then we're also told through the genealogy that Jesus is, in fact, in the Messianic line. And he is a man. He is a descendant of Adam. He is in the flesh. This is not God just taking the form uh, of a man for, for, you know, like the angels would sometimes uh, appear. This is actually flesh and blood. This is Jesus 
um, as 100% man and 100% God. This is not just the illusion of him being a man. This is him walking in flesh and blood from this line of Adam. So the first test that we see Jesus enter into is the test of submission. The test of submission. Luke is very clear that Jesus does not go into the wilderness because he is doing his own thing, because he is venturing out onto his own, because he is acting independently. That's not what's going on. He is very clear that the reason Jesus goes into the wilderness is because he is filled with the Spirit and he is led by the Spirit into this time of testing. And so it's important that you see that Jesus is walking in complete submission to his Father. He is being moved as God's will, as the Father determines for him. And so Jesus perfectly moves as the Father leads him by the Spirit. And we see also in this time, he he is encountered by the devil Now, we tend to think of this passage uh, in that Jesus is only tempted three times. That's kind of how we probably think of it. There was three basic temptations that Jesus uh, faced and that he, he, uh, he was victorious in those temptations. But actually, Luke implies, we see, that, that he was tempted for the entire 40 days. You see that in verse 2, for 40 days being tempted by the devil. This was a 40-day period of Jesus being continually tempted and, and uh, in a sense, assaulted by the devil. This isn't just three temptations. This is 40 days of the devil relentlessly trying to bring Christ down. And you can't help but think of the picture of, of Goliath and David. And for 40 days, this giant taunts Israel He, 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 he blasphemes God for 40 days. And so we have the devil taunting the Son of God, blaspheming God in declaring himself as worthy of worship. And Jesus uh, enters into this not because it's something that he himself decided was good, but because he is walking in submission to his Father. And that is as I said, a lifelong test that Jesus will, will be uh, walking in submission to his Father. Now, Satan obviously knows who he's dealing with. Um, the translation could be also, it says, if you are the Son of God, when Satan comes to him, it could also be translated, since you are the Son of God. The, the devil knows who Jesus is. He, he's not He's not wondering if this might be God in flesh. He knows exactly who he's dealing with, and therefore he knows the implications if Jesus was to fail. If Jesus fails the test, um, then we have no salvation. And in fact, because Jesus is God, I mean, in one sense you could say he can't fail because he's God. God cannot sin. Uh, We are tempted externally, But we're also tempted internally, aren't we, by our own sinful nature. Um, My wife and I were, there was an article about this horrendous uh, murder that happened not long ago. And this man had killed a father and daughter. And in the courts, he would say, he said, he had the audacity to say, the devil told me to do it. The devil made me do it. And that's often our mindset when it comes to temptation. 
But we have to remember for us, we have an internal problem of sin that will tempt us apart from the devil. But Jesus did not have that. He had no internal uh, desire to rebel, to disobey God. He was not born uh, with a sinful nature as we are. So he is being tempted by the devil from the outside, and yet Jesus perfectly passes this test of submission. You see this throughout the life of Jesus, and it is such, a, such an amazing uh, portrait of, of his humility. We don't see him complain. No doubt as he's walking into the wilderness, he knows that this is a test he no doubt knows what is going to unfold before him to some degree. And, and he doesn't complain. He doesn't rebel. He doesn't, he doesn't resist the Father, but perfectly walks through it. Um, and it is such a, such a picture of, of the perfect submission of Jesus. Now, Sometimes we're probably a bit too quick to try and draw application out of these passages and ask, you know, what does it mean for me? But first, we really do need to just step back and, and understand what's happening to see Christ more clearly. Remember Luke said at the beginning of his gospel that the reason he's writing is that we would have confidence, that we would know for sure the things concerning Jesus. So that's the first, the first uh picture and, and, and the truth that we need to see is who is this man and what has he done? And then there are principles for us that we can draw from, but you understand what's happening, that Jesus was in the fullness of God's glory, he was in the splendor of heaven, he, he was worshipped by angels, has now become a man, humbled himself, and he is actually feeling hunger. His stomach is cramping. His mouth is actually drying out. He, his body is actually growing weary, and he is feeling fatigue as a man. As we talked a few weeks back, when we think about the incarnation of Christ, we must understand that he does not fulfill his ministry by using his divinity as an escape. And that's exactly what the devil tries to get Jesus to do. But he sets aside his divinity, and he walks in the power of the Spirit, and he submits himself to the Father perfectly, even though he is divine. He chooses not to walk in that divine nature. He sets that aside, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, and perfectly submits to God, even in this season of great testing and trial. Listen to how the author of Hebrews puts it in regards to this uh, ministry of Jesus, his time on the earth. Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus, having set aside his divinity, is learning 
submission. He is learning dependence, not as though he, he failed, but it is something that he must walk in, that he, as the author of Hebrews says, learns obedience through what he suffered that he is walking out his obedience step by step into this wilderness, and he is doing it as a man, as the God-man. So don't lighten the struggle here. Don't think, well, of course Jesus would be successful. He was God. He he doesn't face the things I face. He He doesn't feel hunger like I feel hunger. He wouldn't have been thirsty like I feel thirsty. No, he would have faced all of those struggles, and yet still did not um, act on his own initiative. Think of the imagery of a silversmith, and I've never worked with silver, but from what I understand that in order to test the purity of silver, it must be heated, and so they will, they will put the silver to the fire, and as it heats, the, the silversmith can begin to tell the purity of it, and as, as it be liquefies, the impurities will begin to rise to the surface, and the, the silver will be, in a sense, exposed for what it is. And you will start to see some of the impurities rise to the surface. And the silversmith looks for his own reflection in the silver. Once it is pure, once there are no impurities, that will be like a mirror reflecting back. And as you think about Jesus entering into this testing, submitting himself to the Father, it is as though the Father is putting Jesus to the fire. And what we see in Christ is absolute, perfect perfection. There are no impurities that rise to the top. There are no, there are no defects in Christ. And as he is put to the fire, that we see clearly who he is. We see his holiness, his, his beauty, his perfection as he perfectly obeys. And of course, for us who are in Christ, as the Father puts us to the fire, we know that we have many imperfections that must be scraped off, off the top. We have many uh, defects that are being worked out through the grace of God, but that is not the case for Jesus. I love the picture in Revelation 1.15 where John sees Christ uh, glorified and, and he says that Jesus had feet of burnished bronze. How do you get burnished bronze? You get that by putting bronze through the fire. Jesus is one who walks through the flame and is in, in this sense purified. He is tested and shown to be holy. Now, before we move on to the second test, you think about the phrase led by the Spirit. And for us, many times we want to think that if the Spirit of God is leading us, then it will be from one degree of wealth to another. It will be of one degree of health to another. It will be of one degree of of popularity or, or peace and joy to another. And that tends to be how we often think about the leading of God's Spirit. And if we go into, a, into a, a desert, so to speak, we would sometimes attribute that more to Satan, wouldn't we? That, that oh, the devil's just, you know, really having a, a heyday in my life, or he's really wreaking havoc. But, but that's not a biblical understanding of the work of God's Spirit. As Martin Luther would say, the devil is God's devil. What he means by that is, while God is not the author of sin, he is sovereign over the devil. 
He, he, is, he is the one who permits Satan to act. And we see that it is the Spirit who led Jesus into this great test. And it is God who is ultimately responsible for it. And I think for us as well, as, as we follow Christ, we need to understand that, that the devil is not sovereign. And that the Spirit most definitely will lead the followers of Christ into times of testing, into times of trial, into times of suffering, that we too might be tested. In fact, Peter would tell us, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And that's 1 Peter 4, 12 and 14. Peter says, don't be surprised when you enter into trials and when you are tested. That is how Christ himself walked. Paul would even tell us in Romans 8, 16 that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. One of the ways to understand our time on this earth is that of cross-bearing of that of trial, of that of testing. Why? Because that is what it was for our Messiah, for the captain of our salvation. And can we think that as Christians, we would somehow not have to walk through times of trial, of suffering, if Jesus himself had to walk through such times? Many of the apostles rejoiced when they were beaten or persecuted because they were identifying with Jesus in those moments of suffering. And if you begin to see trials and testing in your life as identifying with Jesus, as as submitting yourself to the mighty hand of God, then you will have the perseverance to walk through it by God's grace. You need to see this clearly. There is coming a time of glory, of joy, of prosperity for God's people, of of, of unimaginable joy and happiness and peace. But for now, we are in a season of cross-bearing, and our life is joy with mingled sorrow and, and trial. And so we too are called to submit ourselves to the will of God. So we see Jesus be victorious in this first test, this test of submission to his Father, that he does not act upon his own plan. He entrusts himself to God. He is led by the Spirit. And in fact, you could say at every point of Jesus' life, he is saying, not my will, Father, but yours be done. He lived his entire life that way. And of course, you see it most clearly in the garden as Jesus comes before the cross, knowing that this is what God has set before him. And with, we're told, drops of sweat as though they were blood, Jesus says, Father, if this can pass from me, then please take it, but not my will, yours be done. He lived his life in submission to his Father perfectly. 
And we see him pass that test even here as he enters into the wilderness. The second test, which we will close with, is the test of provision. So we have the test of submission. We have the test of provision. Now, of course, this is when Luke says that Jesus was hungry, that is a massive uh, understatement. Forty days without eating, and, and, and for Luke to say Jesus is hungry, I mean, this is Luke the historian. He's very matter-of-fact. He's not going to give you the dramatic, you know, background music, and, and he's just giving you the facts, and so he says Jesus was hungry. Well, yes, we can imagine this kind of hunger. My, my boys will eat, and 15 minutes later, Daddy, I'm hungry, you know, and as though they know what hunger is. Or, uh, you know, of course, conveniently at bedtime, the, Daddy, I'm so hungry, and we've eaten, you know, an hour ago, and they're already dying of hunger. This is hunger. And we see some, like Moses, fast for this kind of time. Um, now, modern research would say that the human body really won't likely live beyond three weeks without food. So there, there may be some supernatural intervention happening when we see these kinds of fasts, even for, for Moses, um, definitely pushing our body, the, the, the human body, to the very limits of its ability to survive without food for this kind of time. Water, we're, according to modern research, we can go about a week with, without water, at the most probably, and then we'll have serious problems. Now, we're not told that Jesus didn't drink, um, possibly not drinking either, but definitely we're told that he ate nothing. So this is, in some ways, um, Jesus, again, submitting himself to the Father, but he is also now taking this test of provision, asking the question, will Jesus reach out his hand to provide for himself, or will he trust himself to his Father and, and wait upon his Father to provide for him? Of course, we know Jesus had the power to make bread. He, he does it in his ministry. So the, the, the issue is not, is it wrong for Jesus to make bread? That's, that's not wrong. We know he does this. He, he, from a few loaves, feeds thousands of people. We know that eating is not wrong. It's not that it's wrong for Jesus to eat. Uh, he was identified by his, his uh, enemies as a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus enjoyed food. He enjoyed the, the gift of God's uh, food and, and uh, drink. So that's not what's going on. It's not that any of these things are evil, but rather it is this test of provision. Who will Jesus look to to provide for his needs? That is the question. That is the test. Um, and as we think about this, we have to be very careful in how we apply it. You all have seen the little bracelet, WWJD, what would Jesus do? That's actually a terrible way to live your life. Um, why? Because if you actually lived that way, you would find yourself wandering in a desert, not eating for 40 days, and you very well might die. So it's actually not a good question to ask, what would Jesus do? Um, it was R.C. Sproul in his book, um, Knowing Scripture, pointed out that a better question to ask is, what did Jesus do, and what did he tell me to do? 
much better question to ask. If you ask the question, what would Jesus do, uh, you would find yourself in, in many uh, very strange situations because he is acting here as the Son of God, as the Messiah. This is a unique test to Jesus. So that's not the point. It's not that we would all, you know, wander out, you know, up into the north country and, and fast for 40 days. That's not the application, but rather it is this principle of Jesus demonstrating this dependence upon God's provision and Him waiting upon the Father. So we know that the devil comes to Jesus, and this is for sure not the, la- the first time that he's come. Um, this would be at the end of, of the 40-day fast. I imagine from the first day, the devil was tempting Jesus. But Luke records for us, as do some of the other authors, some of the specific temptations that the devil brings to Jesus. And these are the ones that we have recorded for us. And so, G- and so the devil comes to Jesus and he tempts him with this very test. Will you provide for yourself, Jesus, because you are able and, and, and so the devil comes appealing to the deity of Christ, his ability to make bread from stones, and, and tells him to go ahead and, and feed himself. He's hungry. But Jesus answers and says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So, Satan has a good theology of who Christ is. He knows he can do this. He knows that you know, this is probably not a temptation that we're going to face to, to take stones and make bread because we don't have the ability to do that. Jesus does. But we, we see Jesus respond, and his response tells us that he will refuse to reach out his hand and, as it were, take the forbidden fruit. He will refuse to, to act on his own timetable and neglect God's timetable. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone. And we see time and for this time and the following two, it is through the scriptures that Jesus refutes the devil. And I know you've heard that, that when it comes to temptation, it is the word of God that we use against the devil as Christ himself demonstrated for us. We do not rebuke Satan on any authority in and of ourselves. We rebuke him on the authority of God's word as Jesus himself did. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy here. And you have to... As Jesus takes this test of provision, you have to understand the the context. In verse 38 of chapter 3, we're told that Adam being the son of God. So you have this statement of Adam as the son of God. Where was it that Adam and Eve failed? Where were they when they failed? They were in a garden. Did they have food? Yes, they had an abundance of food. They had fruit trees and plants. All of it was given to them to eat. And there in that place, they fail and they do not pass the test. Here we have again the Son of God. And you see Luke is is paralleling Adam to Christ. Jesus as the better Adam, 
as the beginning of a new humanity, he is not tested in a garden. He is tested in a desert. He is not tested with an abundance of food around him. He is tested with uh, having not eaten for 40 days. And yet still, Jesus refuses to take out, to reach out his hand and act independent from his father. You can't help but think about not only Adam and Eve, but even Abraham being given a promise of an heir, trying to wait on the Lord. And for years and years, he waits for this child until finally his wife says, you know what? I have an idea. What if you take my servant girl and have a child with her? Then maybe we could speed this up a little bit. Maybe we could, we could fulfill God's promise for him, you know, help God out a little bit. And, and it's a complete disaster. And God says, no, Abraham, it is through Sarah And really, that's the temptation, isn't it? That we do not wait upon the Lord, that we do not trust in his provision, that we act for ourselves. Or Moses, instead of speaking to the rock, striking the rock, and as a result, not entering into the promised land. Or King Saul, who was told to wait for Samuel to offer the sacrifice, instead, being impatient, fearing that he might be overtaken by his enemies, Saul goes ahead and offers the sacrifice himself, and as a result, the kingdom is taken from him. And yet we see Jesus refuse to act independently of his father. He trusts that his father will provide for him in his own time, and he refuses to take the counsel of the devil and provide for himself. And so Jesus passes this test. And even by quoting scripture, I think that is an is a indication as well of the submission of Christ because if Jesus spoke something new, it becomes Scripture, right? He would, be, he would be giving new revelation, so he would be speaking Scripture in a sense either way because as, as his words are recorded, we have uh, new revelation. So even by him quoting Deuteronomy, Jesus is declaring, I will not even rebuke this serpent apart from the words of my Father. It is an amazing picture of Jesus waiting upon the Lord and a, and a, and a glorious picture for us. We'll close with this. It's a, another passage from Hebrews 4:15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.15. So, yes, I think there are principles here for temptation and how we we overcome through the word of God and through submitting ourselves to the Father, through waiting upon the Lord for his provision. But ultimately, what we need to see is Christ, our captain, Jesus, the one who has perfectly submitted for us. Our submission will always be weak and broken and and sporadic. But as we look to Christ, his perfect submission is imputed to us. So we, 
this should first and foremost produce worship in our hearts to the Son of God who has come as the new Adam, as the new humanity. That our, our ability to depend on God, we are constantly looking for ways to provide for our own needs, are we not? I mean, this is really what, what I think um, uh, credit card vendors thrive off of. And I've been convicted at times that there's a need that comes up in my life and instead of coming before the Lord, instead of calling upon Him to provide, we go to a a means that we can do on our own like a credit card or whatever it might be instead of just coming to God and and asking Him. But but we are so sporadic and it's so broken. I, I am so often failing this test of waiting on God's provision. And so ultimately we need to see Christ as perfectly walking in this, that as we look to him, that our acceptance is not based on how we do in these tests, but in his success, in his victory. And so that's what I want to encourage you, first of all, to do. Um, If you feel as though you are struggling with doubt, with anxiety, as though you are, are wanting to act separate from God, Go in your own way, then first and foremost, see Christ, our perfect Savior, our Messiah. And even as we encounter the enemy, it is in the name of Jesus that we hide. It is in his victory that we find victory. That is so key to our Christian life. And if you are here and you have never called upon Christ, if you've never looked upon the crucified Savior who who once and for all, defeated the enemy at the cross, taking our sin upon himself, and then rising again. Call upon Christ to save you, to hide you in his righteousness. So let us pray, and uh, then we will partake of the Lord's table together, and then have a closing song. And so um, if you do have an offering this morning, there's just the little um, the offering bags at the back there, uh, I wasn't sure how many we'd have. I know our ushers were gone that were on for this Sunday. So just put your offering in the bag back there and uh, we will transition into the Lord's Supper. So let's pray and thank the Lord for his word. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, that you have humbled yourself, that you became a man, that you did not leave us in our depravity, in our brokenness, in our defeat, that you did not leave the devil as the ruler of this earth, but you came down, you descended, you became a man, and you you took every test that we failed, and you passed it on our behalf. Father, we thank you that you have called us by your grace, and we ask that you would help us to to grow in, in holiness, to be sanctified through your word, and Lord, that you would help us to be bold and courageous um, in a day that desperately needs the righteousness of Christ proclaimed and his holiness lifted up. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for tuning in today to the sermon uh, preached at Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church. And again, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at church at fairviewcornerstone.com. God bless.